You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The astonishing thing about this Saunders is, I mean, today she has this whole, and this is, I think, true about the right, No, and I don't see a lot of people saying this. I mean, she has this whole screed about, you know, it's the debt, it's not the spending, you know, it's the spending, not the not the revenue, it's, you know, it's the debt level and all this stuff. And she, you know, go, we have to, you know, deal, we really, it's obvious to her, we have to deal with Social Security and Medicare and cut all these things. But like, it's these elephants will not totally ignore the elephant in the room, yeah. which is eight years of insane military spending. Yeah, well, I mean, if you didn't want done. that, why did you, why did you get, you know, why did you send our guys into two wars, you know? Yeah. It's like, well, I, I, well, look, all of that is based on a really simple sleight of hand that anybody can figure out if they think about it, which is, you know, the deficits were bad under Bush, but they didn't seem, you know, deadly. Remember, I used to talk about this when the Wrecking Crew came out. Right, right. And, and, and in fact, Cheney himself said deficits don't matter. And they deliberately ran the spending way up because, you know, there's a sort of theory on the right uh, that, uh, you know, that, that way it'll preempt the liberals from uh, doing their own spending when they get back in. And it'll, it'll create an artificial crisis, and you'll be able to do what they're, in fact, doing now, which is then you demand all these cuts in the liberals' favorite programs, and it gives you an artificial crisis, you know, that you can use. And people have written about this. Milton Friedman himself wrote about it, not in those exact terms, but, um, but you know, fairly close to it. This was all in, in The Wrecking Crew. But um, the, the really fascinating thing is that it's a statistical sleight of hand. The reason the deficit looks so bad is because if we measure it as a percentage of the GDP, and about two years ago, GDP fell off a cliff. So even if the deficit had stayed the same, mm-hmm. you know, in 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 uh, you know in in dollar terms, it would be bigger as a percentage because the underlying economy just fell off a cliff. So you know, and that's what's going on. And then they're you know they're getting all panicked about that, and uh, you know, and it, it's something that anybody can figure out. It's also like textbook economics that when the private sector is not able to invest, government has to do it. There's nobody else. Uh, you know, it's either that or wait for a turnaround, which could take, you know, years and years and years and years. This is sort of basic economics, but um, they just blow that off when they feel like it. Right, right. It's it, and, and also, too, I mean, if I recall correctly... Uh, the, the other thing is all this deficit panic monger. I'm sorry to interrupt uh, yeah, you. No, we no. haven't talked for a long time, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, all this deficit panic mongering, you know, which uh-huh. is something you see all the time if you watch, like, Glenn Beck. I mean, like... Serious panic mongering. You know, he's got people buying gold. Oh know? yeah, yeah. And uh, it's like, have you looked at what the treasury, you know, treasury notes are selling for now? I mean, the interest rate is incredibly low. Nobody thinks there's any risk. If the markets thought there was any risk of the U.S. government really getting itself in trouble, treasuries would be priced really high, and they aren't. It's the completely the other way around. It's the you know it's the one government in the planet that people really aren't worried about. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's because of course we'll be spending billions and literally trillions on war, and also as you know the uh, 
the bailing out the banks. I mean, we've got plenty of wars are expensive. Bailouts are expensive. Yeah. You know, if you want to, you want to keep the rich in the, you know, in the the the, the situation to which they're accustomed. <laughs> it's expensive, Rick. Yes. Well, well, I'm trying to remember the exact quote that uh, uh, Pearson pulled out from somebody, which was that nobody else is so good at uh, socializing. Uh, Risk and, and uh, privatizing, privatizing profit. Privatizing the gain. Privatizing that's right. profit, that's right. and that's that's the our, our that current what, That's what I, I've been saying that for for it seems like <laughs> decades. But uh, in fact, it only goes back about. I mean, I've only been saying about ten years. But this is an old saying. This goes way back. But when people used to say that, this is it, we are in a different world these days, Rick. When people like me used to say things like that, people would say, "Oh, you're some kind of crazy radical." You know, you, mm-hmm. how can you say something so cynical? And it's like, well, that is clearly what's going on. And today, everybody is saying that. I mean, especially on the right, uh, the, 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 the Tea Party types say that all the time. Well, it's a funny world that we're in. It's a funny world. I'm speaking with Thomas Frank. He's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and the Wrecking Crew. He now writes for Harper's, at least uh, for a little while at least. Yeah, three months. <laughs> three months. And he's got a new column called The Easy Chair. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. Of course, Rick. Thomas, your new uh, column in The Easy Chair uh, makes a modest proposal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, yes. And, and no, it's not uh, feeding the rich the babies of the poor. Um, but we'll we'll get to that soon enough. It's a day of servile disobedience. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things that this column is based on that's really interesting is, and I never under knew about this, was that uh, class is a topic of sociological scrutiny. Well, uh, sociology, yes, that's that's the sort of in in strict terms, that's what the discipline of sociology is, the study of social class. But what was interesting, Rick, and, and I don't know if you. Um, how many of your listeners know about this? But there's uh, clinical psychologists have been doing lately have been doing experiments on social class. So they get people from different class backgrounds and see how they react to, you know, different stimuli. And that's something that's completely new. I'd never heard of, of anyone doing that before. And what they found did it, <laughs> what they found is really uh, it isn't that shocking. It's basically that the rich are not very nice. Or they're or they're less nice, less nice than everybody else. And also, it's not just that they're not nice; they they just don't pay attention. We don't we don't rise to the level of human unless our uh, income level rises to their their uh, threshold of perception. Something like that. Yeah, they 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 don't. They, according to these psychologists, they don't pay as they don't. We shouldn't say they don't pay attention flat out. It's that they don't pay attention as well as as people from other backgrounds. So they don't in conversations they doodle more. They'll like you know show how impatient they are more. You know basically they're, they're rude. And uh, that rudeness manifests itself in uh, economic terms as well, doesn't it? Well, that's yeah. In my in my opinion, I mean, you 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 look at the. The situation that that we're in, you know, and and you know, we've been just heaping up all the good things of life at the feet of the rich for thirty years or so, you know, uh, with it's a, thirty that years sort of, of wealth transfer from yeah, uh, though, exactly. the Carter era on. Yeah, that's right, exactly. The wealth transfer from 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 low to high, which has been going on for years and years and years and years and years, and 
what, so, uh, you know, taking these two things, these two facts, I, I say, well, you know, <clears throat> maybe we should, you know, we need the rich to be nice to us. It's not, you know, it's it's too bad that they aren't nice, but, but we've been doing all these very nice things to them. You know, we've been we've been transferring all the wealth of society to them. Shouldn't they be nice back to us? And in fact, if you go back in the sort of literature of philanthropy, that was the whole idea that the rich were supp- supposed to give back in exchange for you know society being so nice to them. This Dale was Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Andrew Carnegie. How to? Or his son was it his son Dale? How to win friends and influence I don't, people? I don't believe they were related. <laughs> I've actually got that book right here. I, that's going to be that is going to figure in my um, in my um, Dale Car- yeah Dale Carnegie How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's going to figure in my next book, which will be out in a, in a couple of months. Uh, it's it, you're never going to guess how <laughs> how it figures. But I don't think he was actually related oh. to Andrew Carnegie. Mm. But Andrew Carnegie wrote a, a famous book of his own. Um, what was it? The Gospel of Wealth. It was called. It was started as a magazine article, and. Um, where he he laid out his philosophy of you know what it meant to be the richest man in the world back then, <clears throat> and, which is a estate tax. He supported yeah, he was, an he was in tax. favor of the estate tax, which is kind of hard to believe now since we you know we regard that as this you know incredible imposition. But yeah, he thought that that you had to give back to society, the society that had made your success possible. Uh, you had to give. He was by the way he was a he was a pretty hardcore social Darwinist in nearly every other way really yeah but he was uh, but about giving back to society he was he was very adamant he thought this was this was a legitimate part of the social darwinist philosophy and um and you had to give your wealth away before you died because it was your responsibility to make sure that it was you know that it was given away well that the that the, the philanthropic operation was done correctly and that uh, the estate tax should be super high because uh, you know people had no business dying with all that money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is what he thought, and uh, and it was it was all because society had made your success possible, and that was the sort of original social contract between uh, between us and the very rich, and that's just been you know tossed overboard. And so uh, you know these people are are you know, and then oh, and then I compared it to. A sort of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand also has a philosophy of how the rich should behave. Uh, Do you ever read Ayn Rand? I've never read Ayn Rand, but I've read quite a bit about her. I talked with Matt Taibbi about uh, Alan Greenspan and his whole connection with Ayn Rand. It's it's terrifying to tell the truth. I mean, she's uh, sometimes uh, considered a science fiction writer. (laughs) Well, that's the the. yeah, the, you know the covers of her books make it look like science fiction. That's often what you think you're getting. And, and to they a look certain like, extent, remember it Isaac, is. the Isaac Asimov covers, like those paperbacks. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, the, her, the covers of her books look a lot like those. <laughs> <laughs> but the, they, her, her, the one that the, her big claim to fame is Atlas Shrugged, and it's supposed to be set in this you know dystopian future where America is is like on the brink of going you know sort of communist or something like that and uh well there are people it, it who is, think so it that is sort of science fiction but she has this great contempt for um for for the non-rich for people that aren't successful i mean this massive contempt and she uh uh often expressed you know her her contempt for 
philanthropy as well. This was a this was a very bad idea, you know, giving money to these foundations, uh, you know, doing all the things that Carnegie suggested. Uh, she thought that was, you know, that you owed nothing. Basically, well, you write here. That she said that in 1981. Boy, I didn't know she was alive then. Um, that was right towards the end of her life. I think right. I'm quoting from her very final speech. Right, uh, that she called altruism a contemptibly evil idea promulgated by guilt-slinging humanitarians in that order means to you, Rick shake Clubble. down the <laughs> productive. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm, I can't be claimed to be productive of any money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 that was her take on. Uh, she said, you know the. She's so interesting because it's just it's all the sort of traditional, um, you know, values of Western civilization stood on in their head. It's it's it, she was a, a kind of a American Nietzsche, you know. She was she was really into Nietzsche, obviously. Wow, that's an interesting uh, that right there. There's there's a there's a great uh, title for a biography of her. The, huh? the American Nietzsche. American Nietzsche. The <laughs> yeah, story Mrs. of Nietzsche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was you know she was always Nietzsche. The whole idea was always to turn the sort of values of the West on their heads, and um, Ayn Rand did it uh, in a very effective way. I mean, she has she's an army of followers. You know, people who are very high placed in government and business. Um, and it's it's a it's a you know it's a frankly it's pretty a, it's a malicious doctrine or in my I shouldn't say malicious I should say vicious you know uh, it's it's this kind of ramped up social Darwinism it's harsh stuff it's a um, uh, it's capitalism turned into uh, uh, yeah, a a razor to use well to yeah slice but it's the, also it's the, also the, capitalism the, with all the you know um, capitalism has always had trouble existing side by side with. Well, you know, basically uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, and 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 her her idea was, well, the hell with that. Capitalism rocks, you know. There should be no apologies, you know. It, it's okay, so it's had trouble, you know, being part of this tradition. Well, anyhow, now, so so she was she was very much down on philanthropy. Mm. So uh, you know, I look at these two traditions, and and then and then I you know, there, it turns out there's actually some uh, social scientists who have studied. Not just people who have studied, you know, the rich and how, uh, you know, the, the, the psychologists that I was talking about earlier. Very interesting stuff, by the way. It's these psychologists who study the rich and found that they that they aren't that they're less nice than other people. But there's other people who have studied the rich and tried to figure out how to make them nice. <laughs> well, is this does this involve something like uh, what we see in A Clockwork Orange? I hope. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. You're going to make it's, them watch actually, episodes it's, of Lassie. It's actually really, a, it's it's a strange idea. It's it's how can you market virtue? You know, how can you get people to do virtuous things? And their big example is the Prius. Mm. You know that car? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I know several people who own them. So yeah, and and the, they 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 study the way the Prius was marketed and why people own it. Mm-hmm. And it's also that they it's it's sort of this is you're talking about people standing philosophies on their heads. This is standing Thorsten Veblen on on his head. Mm-hmm. They, uh, it's this sort of conspicuous display of virtue. They discovered that you know people will do this do recycling stuff, but only if it's conspicuous, right? Only if everybody can see them doing it. So you have to be carrying around like something made of hemp. You know, <laughs> you can't be doing it in the privacy of your own home. Nobody's interested in that. So a Prius is perfect because everybody sees you. In your car, <laughs> you know. 
but if you know if 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 the Prius if your car was just something that that nobody ever saw you know that that you only drove in the privacy of your own home then then no one would ever be interested in one. Well, you know, and that explains why the back seats of Priuses are so roomy and comfortable, so they can be chauffeur driven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. That's a funny idea. Now, one of the things you talk about is is the new face of philanthropy, which is actually, I think, unfolding this very day uh, with the Koch brothers. Yes. <laughs> I was surprised to see Welfare when I was the writing rich. the article that there was a, that sort of leak where there's a Koch brothers document that got um, – that got leaked somehow, and it was an it was an invitation to their retreat that they had a few days ago. Actually, mm-hmm. came off a few days ago in Los Angeles, and uh, or near Los Angeles, and it was um, you know they have all these various figures from the sort of conservative political world. You know, they fund all these conservative um, organizations. Oh. oh yeah, yeah, no, they. But it they also are. had a lot about philanthropy in there, uh, and I was kind of surprised by that. That they describe a lot of their political giving as philanthropy, and not only that, but they offer uh, guidance to other billionaires about you know how to do what they've <laughs> done, right? So to, you know, they they they've got this kind of class consciousness that you don't often see anymore. I guess you don't often see outside of an Ayn Rand novel, you know. It's funny, now that I've mentioned a kind of intense class consciousness twice here, that both the Ayn Rand variety and the Koch brothers variety. And so, and so I was looking at that and thinking, well, what can we do about this? What can, you know, you and me do about all this? Well, you know, the, the answer is nothing. But I, the, the idea of this article was, was to be humorous. <laughs> How can we make the rich nice and by making the poor mean? Well, that that seems like a, a lot of fun to me. <laughs> so I came <laughs> up with this idea that we should all be rude now for one day. Well, let's choose a day. I mean, maybe it should be what the day after Labor Day or six months from Labor Day. Kind <laughs> maybe of, it should it, be Labor Day, a yeah, civility strike. You know, yeah, a civility strike. A day without deference. A day without deference. I like that. That's a that has a nice ring to it. Years ago, Rick, I you know I grew up in the in the seventies, and um, deference was not something that you saw very often. That was a sort of. Um, you know the robust late period of American middle class. You know the, mm-hmm. the American middle class uh, way of life, where that was what everybody was. You know, and deference was something you didn't see in America. No, then, no. It, it, well, and then everything changed, and that was kind of also before the 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 real heyday of a huge uh, economic celebrity culture. That's exactly. And we didn't I, have I remember those when kind of I and, and then I went to college soon after that and mm-hmm. didn't, you know, I didn't stay in fancy hotels. I didn't do anything like that. And the and the first time I ever happened to be back in a fancy hotel uh, would have been in the early '90s. And by then, the sort of culture of deference was was totally in 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 swing you know it was moving right along and i was astonished by how <laughs> deferential you know uh toadying if you will the people were in fancy restaurants and fancy hotels and i'm not going to tell you how i happened to be in these places but it, it was striking since i hadn't been in those kind of you know precincts in 20 years and um it, it was shocking to me and I've wondered about that ever since. I'd like to do a history of American deference, you know. But uh, but anyhow, I mean, everyone knows it's made this amazing comeback in American life, you know, from sort of disappeared in the 30s 
and then and then uh, you know and then and now is is in high gear again in our own time, which it should be, you know, because that's the distribution of wealth. It's a reaction to that. So I suggested tongue firmly in cheek in this article that that all <laughs> all the service employees, you know, should be rude to the rich for one day. You know, they have to open their own damn door in the limousine. And you, have you ever been in the airport? And it's like first-class passengers may board at their leisure. Hell, board at somebody else's leisure. You know, to hell with that. You know, <laughs> you know, and just <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I've got a sore throat. And uh, like the the janitors will will mop up no vomit in the Princeton the stairwells of Princeton University. I wanted to say you know the uh, adjuncts at Harvard will hand out no A's. You know, <laughs> no great inflation at Stanford. You know. But you could you could just go down the list. Have the you know the the interns refuse to get coffee at CNBC, or the, the on-air talent at CNBC actually asks the billionaires some hard questions for once. Uh, I don't wouldn't think it that be, wouldn't it be a a, a refreshing change. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it might be refreshing, but I think it might be kind of traumatic for people to see uh, the rich treated um, the way they are treated. And to be quite honest, I think it'd be good. I mean, you think it, you think it would be healthy? I think it would be healthy and, because and then, it would then, so instill that's, that's in sort of the, that's sort of the winding up joke in the the article is that you know, hey, and after all, you know, we we we're doing this for their benefit. <laughs> Not for us. It's all about them, you know. We're really concerned about them. And uh, so, you know, that's why we have mass industrial actions anyway, is just to, 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 to make life that much easier for those guys. We are the world we care. <laughs> well, to be precise, they are the world. <laughs> or at least a We're name. just living in it. <laughs> I've been speaking with Thomas Frank, and we're living in the same world with Thomas Frank. He's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas and the Wrecking Crew, and he writes a column for Harper's Magazine. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. Sure thing, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.